and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 128 and today's episode, Neurodiversity Behavioural Strategies, I will share ways that you can support your neurodivergent child or suspected neurodivergent child with day-to-day strategies which focus on changing and supporting and modifying behaviour. So these are non-medication strategies which can run alongside medication if that's the route that you've gone down or form part of your sort of more general intervention plan both at home and at school. So this podcast episode is for parents, grandparents, educators, nannies and anyone else who's involved in children's lives but really wants to understand a bit more about neurodiversity and how some very simple behavioural strategies can be put in place that really help and support them. Now, it is thought one in about five or six children, so that's between 16 and 20% of children have what we call natural variations in the way their brains work. So their, their brains work in a different way than what we might call typical. So it's they'll have these variations in how the brain work, how they experience understand and interact with the world and these variations are described as neurodivergent and it can include the variations that we tend to see in children with attention deficit hyperactivity autism and also dyslexia now in the past neurodivergence has been very much considered a problem which needs to be fixed with medication or with very rigid behavioral strategies as it's often been you know, in the past, it was very much considered an abnormality. Now, more recently, there has been a noticeable shift in emphasis on strengths too, as well as the challenges. We've had you know, notable celebrities have stepped forward um, and talked much more openly about their neurodiversity, the more recent of which has been Stephen Bartlett of Diary of a CEO fame, who has just recently sort of been diagnosed with ADHD. So there's definitely been a much more openness around talking about it and less of this sort of the stigma attached. I think there is still stigma there, but it's definitely being addressed in a much more positive way. And certainly, you know, LinkedIn is the only social platform as such that I'm on. And I'm seeing a lot more adults talking about their diagnoses or just being diagnosed as an adult. So there are swings and roundabouts with this neurodivergence in lots of ways when we begin to encompass more accepting ways of behaving around some of these things, it can sometimes feel like the pendulum slightly swung the other way in terms of adults I'm talking about here. But this episode is very specifically around helping and supporting children who are neurodivergent. And obviously the strategies we'll talk about will also help adults, but my focus primarily here is children. Now, there are lots of famous people who are neurodivergent. We've got Stephen Bartlett, who's ADHD, Greta Thunberg, ADHD, Bill Gates, dyslexic and ADHD, Emma Watson, Hermione of Harry Potter, ADHD, Simone Biles, gymnast, ADHD, Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic athlete. He's a swimmer, but he is the most decorated of all time 
currently has ADHD. Lionel Messi, who I had absolutely no idea, the footballer that is hailed as this phenomenal footballer, has been very open in talking about his autism and Asperger's diagnosis, which is generally now under the umbrella of ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorders. So let's start with just talking about some of the characteristics. So these are not, it's not an exhaustive list, but some of you may be listening to this aware of neurodivergence and are really just looking at educating yourself you don't necessarily have any formal diagnosis for your children but you suspect that there's some things that are happening or you're just interested so i'm really going to just touch up touch upon some of the broad characteristics of both adhd and asd and then we're going to look specifically at the behavioral strategies now i have chosen not to cover dyslexia in this because I'm really focusing in on some of the typical challenges day to day around behavioral issues that tend to be exhibited much more in ADHD and ASD. There will be some aspects that children who are struggling with dyslexia that you may pick up on as part of these characteristics of both ADHD and ASD. And so the behavioral strategies will 100% support that. But with dyslexia, there are, there's so much variation within that that it can equally be covered amongst those two and potentially could be a podcast episode entirely on its own. So watch this space for that one that will come. So let's look at the characteristics, first of all, of ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And you can have attention deficit without the hyperactivity. So what I'm talking about in terms of the characteristics are four things that are typical of ADD or ADHD. So a a child can have attention deficit either with or without hyperactivity. Hyperactivity, as you would imagine, is basically super, super busy, really struggling to sit still, but in a more extreme version. So you'll be able to work out whether that is that sort of sits consistently with what's happening with your child or not the most common thing that is a characteristic of ADD and ADHD is just poor impulse control so you may see that in that they interrupt conversations regularly or they take risks because they don't think things through so they're not able to make that pause before acting so they tend to sort of act they're action orientated rather than thinking for a moment so poor impulse control is a really classic sign The other one is difficulty sustaining attention and focus. Although what I will caveat that with is that children with ADD or ADHD can be supremely focused in areas with which they enjoy. So where you tend to see the difficulties around sustained attention and focus is usually around areas that they do not enjoy or find difficult. So they typically struggle to keep focused at school and can be very easily distracted. The third one is that they tend to fidget and be very busy with their body and their brain. So even if they're not not hyperactive, they'll have that. So you'll find them constantly playing with something in their hands, twiddling things in their fingers or, you know, picking things apart or moving around constantly. And that might be that movement could be physically standing up, but it could be around them physically moving within their seats. You know, there's a bit of that sort of moving around and really difficult to kind of get that bum firmly on the seat or on the floor or wherever it is that they might be. And they have difficulties with organisation. So they can be super messy and disorganised. And that can not only just be in the physical things, 
but also in terms of their thoughts as well as their actions. So what might typically happen is you might be having a conversation with a child who has attention deficit hyperactivity or just attention deficit disorder. And what will happen is they're they, they will sort of their conversation pings from one topic to another topic to another topic it tends to be things that are happening and quite often what we find with children with ADHD is that there if you were to sort of brain scan them the part of the brain which is all about decision making and logic and problem solving our prefrontal cortex you generally see less activity there because things are much much more sort of disordered and so you don't tend to now that doesn't mean that they can't problem solve that they can't make good decisions it's just that particular area of the brain doesn't light up as much as it would do with a child who doesn't have it so those are the characteristics of attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity hyperactive disorders the characteristics of asd so asd has become this this umbrella when i sort of did my degree i did a lot of work with children with autism it was part of the kind of area that really fascinated me and i was trained in some very groundbreaking behavioral strategies at the time and at that time so that this is like 20 odd years ago long time ago we didn't have an umbrella term so asd autistic spectrum disorder is an umbrella term and in in lots of ways you know people will fit somewhere along that and in lots of ways we all have some form of neurodivergence within ourselves anyway all of us back when i first started you had these sort of very distinct sort of diagnoses of autism and aspergers and it was sort of whilst they shared similar characteristics you typically thought of aspergers well certainly that's where the way it was communicated as what we called high functioning so children adults with aspergers typically were in mainstream school but they needed this of additional support in terms of the challenges that they particularly had whereas with autism it tended to be more at the extreme end and so with autistic children sometimes you would have autistic children who were non-verbal so they would they could very easily be 13 but unable to communicate or they would have these sort of you know, one of the things that we sort of associate with the film Rain Man, these sort of savant, these real extreme genius type qualities, and then other areas where they really struggled. Now we have just one umbrella term, which is, you know, the ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorders. Now the four sort of main things that are typical of those children who present with ASD is that they find social interactions difficult now part of that is about the unpredictability of social situations they generally struggle with things with unpredictable and change but it's also difficulties around understanding the viewpoint of other people and seeing that you know that others can view the same situation with a very different perspective very much linked to this idea about theory of mind understanding that you can look at a situation and and have an opinion and a view in one way but that somebody might view it in a different way. And that was really characterised, certainly back in the very, very early literature, with um, this sort of notion of the sort of the Sally Ann scenario, which let me just sort of talk you through it, because it's a really good way of explaining it. And it's the idea that Sally is playing with her doll. So this is a scenario that they're told, and it's a great way of just being able to see the viewpoint. So Sally is playing with her doll, and she's called down to dinner. So Sally puts her doll in her toy chest and then goes down for dinner. Anne goes into Sally's room, takes the doll out of the toy chest, plays with it, 
and then places it on the shelf when she's finished. So this is a scenario that you're sort of explaining to them is happening. Then the question to the child that you've told the scenario to would be, where do you think Sally will look for her doll when she returns back upstairs after she's eaten? And when we're thinking about theory of mind and being able to empathise and see things from another person's point of view, the correct answer is that as far as Sally was concerned, when she went downstairs to have her dinner, she had placed her doll in her toy box. And so where she would look for it would therefore be the toy box because she is unaware of Anne who has taken it out and placed it on the shelf. What would happen with a child who have who with ASD is that they would find it difficult to extrapolate that notion that there's different viewpoints and will typically give an answer that, that Sally would return back upstairs to her bedroom and would look the, for the toy in the logical place, which is where Anne left it, on the shelf. So that's one of the sort of characteristic challenges. Remember that when we're talking about ASD, we are talking about a spectrum so that children can oscillate on that um, in terms of some of the ways that they present. It's not all uniform. So that's number one. The second one is that they tend to have a fixation on routine and familiarity. They don't like change. They have a strong need for certainty. So children with ASD will often sort of seek reassurances about what's happening now, what's happening next. Is this what's to be expected? That routine provides a level of security, which then is something that they you know that they particularly seek out so that's the second one the third is that they may engage not all but they may engage in self stimulatory behavior so this can be banging of heads it could but it, it can also be in terms of the tightness of shoes or the tightness of clothes so it's it's that they will look for other ways to get sensory feedback through their environment but it isn't always the case with all of them and then the fourth one is that they often have intense emotional reactions and are very susceptible to anxiety as a result of that so there's a real difficulty around sort of that regulatory of emotions and particularly where change occurs and that things are unfamiliar and not sort of within that their perceived realms of being able to cope so those are some of the characteristics. So these are very broad and this podcast episode really isn't about looking very deeply at you know, what is ADHD and what is ASD. This is much more about giving you some context. And then what we're really looking is about going really deep in terms of the behavioral strategies. So I've got six behavioral strategies that I want to talk you through. What I've said so far is beginning to resonate with you really try and digest all of the six strategies and then just choose one that you think would be the most impactful for your child and for the rest of your family if you implemented that consistently. The danger of taking on too many strategies, whilst they may all be entirely relevant, all super helpful for your family, it's really difficult when you're doing multiple new things to be consistent and consistency is 100% the key particularly when we're looking at neurodivergent children they really need that it's crucial and so important so let's dive in so the first one that I would say and this is a one that you can just do straight away is be quick with your descriptive praise 
and be super explicit. So what do we mean by descriptive praise? Praise is when we say to our children that we're so impressed with what they've done. But the descriptive praise is to be really clear what it is that we've seen in their behavior that we are praising them for. So I'm super impressed that when you came in from school, you put your bag away exactly where you were asked to put it away and you went straight upstairs to change out of your school uniform. So that's really clear what it is that you that child has done that you absolutely that you're praising. And the reason why descriptive praise works so well is because you are a praise is wonderful. Two, when we use the superlatives, which we typically sort of do, oh my goodness me, you're amazing, you're incredible, that's fabulous. It isn't doesn't really instruct our children other than making them feel great in that moment doesn't really instruct them with what it is specifically that you liked and what I will say is if we are prone to the superlatives often is that children no longer see any benefit in that they don't feel that they've achieved anything it's it's like almost like that sort of thing well my parents do that all of the time it's not really that amazing I'm not that fabulous so it's really important that we use descriptive praise now when we're talking about neurodivergent children it's super helpful because it helps them learn even more so the types of behavior you want to see more of and most importantly it builds their self-esteem so when they so often feel that they're constantly doing or saying the wrong thing quite often you know, when we've got neurodivergent children, we can feel like we're constantly on their case for the things. Oh, don't do, don't jump there to stop interrupting and don't, you know, get so upset or whatever it is that we're we're constantly saying. It can make such a big difference. And self-esteem can quite typically be low in neurodivergent because they're aware that their behavior marks them as different. And particularly if that's pulled up in the peer group that they're in and they find it difficult with the social interactions and friendships, or they feel that they're constantly behaving in a way that's different that gets picked up on their school teachers. It has a real big difference on their self-esteem. So that's why it's really important. And obviously, it's about making sure that we describe, you know, we do the descriptive praise really quickly, particularly because obviously the attention span can sometimes be quite short. And so we've got to get in there quickly. Now, I know some children who are neurodiverse can present with a lot of challenging behavior. And it can be all too easy to get caught up in what they're doing wrong. There are lots of great things that they are doing or that they're trying to do. And descriptive praise is incredible for that. And it also serves in lots of ways for us as a wonderful reminder to us of all the incredible things that they do which counterbalance the challenge. Now, not always, but at least in some way, and I say that for those of you who are listening, who may be really struggling right now with your neurodivergent child. And I think when we shift that emphasis and we shift that focus, it has a profound effect on our child, but it also has a profound effect on us because it just, it reminds us of that. And whether you're listening to this and you haven't got a neurodivergent child, It's a great reminder that our children do some really great stuff, even if they don't always make the best choices. But they pause in that moment before they have that absolute meltdown in that screen. So we can see that they're desperately trying. If we focus on the outburst and we don't congratulate them for that pause, that moment when they've tried... We never bolster their self-esteem. They always view themselves as somebody who loses control 
acts impulsively, can't manage their emotions, upsets people, breaks things, you know, struggles with making friendships. So it it really has such a big big impact. And if you're but if you're listening to this and you are caught in that loop of, you know, feeling like you just don't know what to do, this is where a support network is just so helpful. Taking that step back and reminding yourself and, and just really getting caught into that descriptive praise. So that's a huge one and is one that potentially could make a huge amount of difference if you just simply just started with that strategy first, because it then sets the tone, the culture, the environment it within your home that then allows the other strategies to be easier to implement. So that's number one. Number two is keep your instructions short and succinct. Communication is crucial. How we communicate with neurodiverse children because they can very easily become overwhelmed and overloaded. And we often naturally, I'm a great culprit for this, just come up with too many words. We say too many things when actually fewer words, much more directive can be super, super helpful. So help them process the important pieces of your message by not overusing your words or being ambiguous or just simply using too many. Now, some children, not necessarily all, but some children will also benefit not only in us making sure that our instructions are short and succinct, but some children also benefit from visual prompts as reminders because it takes that cognitive load away. So those can be reminders of what that they need to do now and what they need to do next. And that reduction in cognitive load and cognitive processing can be super helpful, particularly not only in terms of tasks, but really, really helpful when it comes to communicating feelings, because often children who are neurodiverse really struggle with communicating around their feelings. And so, you know, little visual cards for different emojis with different emotions can be really helpful because they're not having to kind of dig deep into that logical brain to be able to express how they're feeling. And those can be really helpful. So keep your instructions short and succinct and use visual prompts for those that might need it. The third is practice skills at home, which help your child in social situations. We know we often get caught up in talking about what our children should be doing in that sort of verbal way, but actually physically practicing it, um, role playing it or just using sort of games and activities which naturally have part of that. So things like turn taking, so board games or strategy games, anything that requires turn-taking, we can role-play and practice our children having, you know, practicing greeting people. That Because quite often with neurodiverse children, those social situations, it's often the initial bit is really, really difficult. It's awkward. And so if they can practice their greetings, like role-playing, hello, my name is, or just those sort of situations that they typically find difficult, the more they role-play in an environment which they feel safe, at home with you the easier it becomes and when you're doing role playing make sure that you play both parts because obviously we're trying to support our neurodivergent child by giving them the space to practice but it's also helpful sometimes where we play the neurodivergent child and our child plays the adult prompting 
or being in that social situation because that often really consolidates and solidifies their learning so make sure that you do both so they can practice greetings they can practice eye contact we can help them with the volume of their voice so you know i've quite often I talk to my children about inside voices and outside voices, you know, social space and proximity. You know, do we have a child that tends to get super, super close? So it's about helping them find the right balance. Do we have a child that's say like miles apart, miles away or has their eyes constantly down? Those are the sort of things that we can practice. We can practice reading social cues so we can kind of make up all of these various different scenarios and encourage them to try and read into it and get them to do the same and we've got to try and read into those so remember that the brain is plastic whilst we talk about neurodivergent children having variations in their brain their natural brain the brain is plastic and we can teach it to be anything and anyone that we want it to be and we often see this when we talk about neurodivergence particularly with girls, is that girls can often be really difficult to pick up neurodivergence because they're so clued in in terms of modifying their behaviour to fit in that we often they often become overlooked in terms of neurodivergence. So we know that this is something that can be practised, that can be, you know, it, it isn't like a death nail sentence and limiting at all. It's just remembering that these are skills that we need to physically practice. Children learn by doing, not talking. So let's not forget the practical doing things that we can practice at home. So, so far we've talked about be quick with your descriptive praise and be super explicit. Number two is keep your instructions short and succinct. The third is practice skills at home which help your child in the social situations that they struggle with that build up the anxiety. Number four is teach consequences, both in the good and the poor choices they make. So this way they learn the connection between the choices they make and the outcome. Yeah, remember when we are trying to change patterns of behavior and accepting that neurodiverse brains are different, we are trying to create new connections in the brain and this will take time. Do not despair stick at it and remember point one you know be quick with your descriptive praise it'll get both you and your child out of that spiral of constantly being pulled up for making poor choices which just creates a bad atmosphere at home we often talk about teaching consequences when it comes to an alternative to discipline so you know you made you didn't come off your electronic device when you asked to so the consequence to that is let's not forget to be really super vocal and to be quick with our descriptive praise and explicit when our children do wonderful things and we can then talk to them about the consequences of the great things that they've done the great choices that they've made has then created this this you know consequence which has a great outcome it's a positive outcome so let's not shy with teaching consequences in the good as well as the poor ones, because that's what we're trying to do is help build those neural connections. Number five is just as a reminder more than anything else. And maybe that's something that you can write. Whenever I try and remind myself about something that I'm working on, I always sort of write it on little pieces of paper everywhere that I'm likely to be. And it's remember that there are strengths, huge strengths to your child's neurodivergence, as well as their challenges. There are 
phenomenal amounts that the energy that comes with ADHD, the creativity that comes, the focus that comes with ASD and that intensity with which they apply themselves to things that they love. Let us not forget that these are strengths and remind yourself of all of these incredible neurodiverse adults who have made incredible lives for themselves but also ones that have been incredibly impactful for other people you know where would we be without without the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates in terms of tech and all of these athletes that we have and all of these literary people who are neurodivergent so let us not forget the strengths that come with our child's neurodivergence as well as the challenges and the sixth and the final one is about building toolkits help your child over time it's not going to happen overnight but help them over time build a toolkit of strategies which help them in the moment and in situations that they find challenging and part of that toolkit is goes back to you know the point three about practicing skills at home role playing but it's also about having those problem solving conversations with your child in those moments they'll be short but in those moments where they're accessing that frontal prefrontal cortex where they're in that logical rational reasoning where we have conversations around what can we do to help in that situation because i know that that makes you feel overwhelmed and anxious what could we try and then come back to it review reflect is that something that can go into our toolkit and what goes in the toolkit doesn't have to work a hundred percent of the time in a hundred percent of different situations a toolkit as we know a actual physical diy toolkit is filled with lots of different tools that we use in different situations some are not helpful you wouldn't use a spanner to hang up a picture but it's still one of the crucial things that you have in your toolkit because you'll need it when you want to switch off your water supply So it's remembering that the toolkit doesn't have to be something that they go to every single time because it is their only tool. It is the different tools that they'll use in different situations. That's a pretty comprehensive, I hope, set of strategies. I'd love to have your feedback genuinely to find out how those have resonated with you. If you've used some of them, as you're using them, what's been helpful, what hasn't been helpful, what have you tweaked, what you haven't tweaked. Have you got any questions? So do please get in contact, either leave a comment on the podcast itself or get in contact with us directly at contact at drmaryhan.com. As ever, my give is going to be these top six strategies in a checklist so that that's that reminder and you can maybe make some annotated notes, which one you're going to try first. Maybe you've tried some of these permutations already, but where you might make those tweaks. But consistency is crucial. As usual, you need to head over to my free resource library, drmaryhand.com forward slash library, where you'll find the link to download the resource. All you need to do is pop in your email address and you'll get instant access not only to this week's neurodiverse resource, but all the other free resources across all my other podcast episodes. As ever, if you have enjoyed this episode, if you could just take two minutes out of your time to review, rate and follow this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time.
What is One Million Moments all about? We know prevention is better than cure. Children who feel connected, heard and understood are less likely to struggle with their mental health. One Million Moments is all about seizing opportunities to connect with children moment by moment, day by day. Head over to our website, onemillionmoments.org. That's O-N-E millionmoments.org and join the initiative, join the campaign and help us positively impact one million lives. Thank you.